I feel like it is one of my primary obligations as a communicator of the gospel to help you understand and see God clearly. My goal is for you to, I know you're still standing. I'm gonna let you sit in just a moment. I saw someone, does he know? I know, I know. It's my goal to help us see who is this God that we talk about and see him rightly. And in the day and age we live in, there's a lot of confusion surrounding this question, who is God? How does he think? How does he operate? What does he do? We know, we know who God is based on what he does. And so I feel like my assignment today is to fill in this blank. We serve a God who fill in the blank. And of course, there's a hundred different things that I could fill in that blank with. I could preach a message called, we serve a God who heals. Come on, how many of you know God still heals today? Physically, spiritually, emotionally, God can still heal. I could have preached about how Jesus, every time he encountered sickness, he healed sickness. If you need healing today, he's a God who heals. I could have preached a message called, he's a God who delivers, because I've learned this about Jesus, that he'll stop at nothing to set his, his people free. We, this is the God who took the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. This is, this is the God who will tear down a wall, who will split a sea, who will kill a giant. He will stop at nothing to set you free. He's a God who delivers. So if you need deliverance today, if you need healing today, he's a God who heals and he's a God who delivers. Today, I'm not preaching on any of those things. Today, I'm filling in the blank with this. I'm gonna preach a God who runs. A God who runs. Well, what does that mean? We'll get to that in just a little bit. Let's take a moment, let's pray. Jesus, we love you so much. And we just ask that you would breathe on this service. Lord, that we would get out of the way. I ask God that you would give me the grace to do what you've called me to do in the name of Jesus. And everyone just pray this prayer. Say, Jesus, speak to my heart changed my life in your name amen amen come on if you're ready for the word say yes before you see it turn to your neighbor and say i hate when preachers have me turn to my neighbor <laughs> don't you though <laughs> confession time i spend a lot of my life confused a lot of times I'll say stuff like this when I preach and people come up after me, come up to me after with a message and they'll be like, you know what, don't sell yourself short. And I appreciate that, but I'm also, I'm just trying to give you a fair warning here. I spent a lot of my life confused, whether it is in conversations or driving through the DFW airport or building Ikea furniture. I spend a good majority of my life in confusion. The worst part is when you're in conversation and someone explains something to me two or three times and I'm still confused. Does anybody with similar hair color to me identify with what I'm saying? And typically, time three or four that they explain it, I will say something along the lines of, oh, got you. But secretly, I do not got you. <laughs> I spend a lot of time in my life confused. And as I mentioned, there's a lot of confusion surrounding this question, who is God? But in addition to our confusion about God in 2022, there is a lot of confusion about this thing the scripture talks about called sin. There's a lot of confusion. What is sin? Now, a lot of my message today is going to be surrounding this idea. What is a holy God's response to my sin and your sin? And so I'm just going to lay a foundation for a moment. We know what sin is. Uh, sin is defined in, in a lot of different ways, but basically sin is violating the word of God. 
And we know what sin is based on what the word of God teaches us. There, would, there is a modern mindset that would say, I get to decide and you get to decide what is sin and what is not sin. Uh, it's your truth, but it's not my truth. This thinking is what we would call moral relativism. Did you come to learn today? This is what we would call moral relativism. And the definition of moral relativism uh, is, is this. It's the view that moral judgments are true or false only relative to individuals' particular perspective. It's follow your heart. It's that's right for you, but it's not right for me. That's, it's wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. The problem with following your heart is a heart that has not been redeemed is a really bad compass to live by. Are you encouraged? Yeah. Uh, the, the Bible says that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? And so here's the reality is the human soul is destroyed under the weight of man deciding what is sin and what is not sin. Even society cannot sustain under the weight of moral relativism because what happens with when what is true for me is harmful for you? Society can't sustain it. Your soul can't sustain it. So we've got to have a higher authority that teaches us this is what sin is. Can I tell you, in 2022, God still hates sin. In 2022, sin is still destructive. Sin still grieves the heart of God. Sin still breaks the heart of God. The Bible says, and this is our central text for all of today's message, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is, is eternal life. Sin is such a big deal that when Jesus' job description was being introduced in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, uh, the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus and he shall save the people from their what? From their sin. When Jesus was introducing the Holy Spirit, he gave the Holy Spirit a job description. He said, I'm sending to you a helper, a comforter, and he will, and he did not say give you power or tongues or help you prophesy. All of that stuff comes later. He said, the Holy Spirit will convict you of, help me, Sin. Sin is still a big deal. The wages of sin is still death. And today we are going to wrestle with two questions. What leads us to sin? What causes us to sin? And what is a holy God's response to my sin and your sin? And today we're going to start all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And if you remember Genesis chapter 3, God had made everything perfect. Everything was peaceful. Everything was joyful. Adam and Eve had already been created, and the Bible says that they would walk with God in the cool of the day. This was relationship. This was beautiful. This was perfection. This was incredible. And then one day, sin is introduced by the enemy. Now, here's what's interesting is we don't know how long Adam and Eve walked with God in perfect harmony. It could have been days. It could have been Months, it could have quite possibly been years that Adam and Eve walked with God, but then the enemy creeps in in Genesis chapter 3. And I'm going to invite you right now to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. If you've got it on your phone, it'll be up on the screen. Just go ahead and open up those Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. I do know that there's a tag on my shoe still. I'm planning on returning these after the service. <laughs> I don't have any explanation for why I decided to wear a turtleneck today. I guess I'm feeling bold. 
With all that being said, let's open up the word of God, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. What a great introduction to the fall of humanity. (laughs) Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat? of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. The wages of sin is not death. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This is the moment where sin was introduced to humanity. This is the moment where Adam and Eve make the earth-shattering, destructive decision to sin. I picture this, I envision this, that the moment Eve bit into that fruit, that the sound of her biting into the fruit echoed throughout the heavens. I imagine that soon after that sound echoed throughout the heavens, the sound of God's heart breaking in two echoed throughout the heavens. But here's what I want to wrestle with is why did Adam and Eve sin? And we can actually find it in the scripture. There are a lot of different things that we could pull out. But here's what I want to show you. Is that the Bible says the enemy comes to Adam and Eve and says, uh, did you know that when you eat of this fruit, you will be like God? Everyone say like. The problem with the enemy's deception is that Genesis 1.26 says that God said, let us make man in our image and our like. Everyone say likeness. Likeness, God, I'll make man in my image and in my likeness. So they were already like God. They were not equal with God. They were not God, but they were made in his image and his likeness. So what the enemy did is convince them, here's the great lie of sin, is that sin has something that you need. That you are missing something and that sin is the answer. And so why did Adam and Eve sin? I believe this, that they forgot who they were. Adam and Eve were the ones who forgot. They were created in the image and likeness of God. But in this moment, they forgot because the enemy convinced them, you don't have the image and likeness of God. The moment you forget who you are is the moment you start gravitating towards sin. Well, who am I? The Bible speaks consistently about the identity of a believer. The Bible says you are more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. The Bible says that you are the righteousness of God in Christ, that you're washed whiter than snow. The Bible is constantly, the Bible says you're seated in heavenly places. All throughout the narrative of scripture, we are hearing the identity of heaven being spoken over you, and you will always gravitate towards the identity you believe yourself to be. So if I believe and declare what the word of God calls over me, that I am more than a conqueror, that I'm gravitating towards a life of conquering over sin. The moment you realize who you are in Christ is the moment you start being victorious over hell, death, and the grave. But you will also gravitate towards what you believe about yourself, even if it's negative. If you believe you are worthless, if your internal world says, I'll always be addicted, If your internal world identifies as a sinner, you will always be subject to the gravitational pull of sin. So Adam and Eve forgot 
who they were. Listen, if you walk around this life without an identity, you've got a target on your back. If you walk around this world not knowing what the scripture says about you, you've got a target on your back. Listen, if you don't allow the word of God to name you, then the world will name you. In fact, I want to show you this in scripture. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The Bible says this. The enemy approaches the woman. And the Bible says the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that God made. And he said to who? The woman. I was reading this and I thought, why didn't the Bible say God spoke to Eve? And I realized as I was reading in preparation for this message that Adam did not name Eve until after the fall. Watch this, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20. It says, then Adam, this is after the fall, after the fruit has been eaten, then Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. So Eve didn't have a name till after the fall. Let me say it like this. Eve didn't have identity until after the fall. So as the enemy is walking into the garden, slithering into the garden, I don't know, He's a serpent. As the enemy is approaching the garden, asking the question, who am I going to approach first? He's got two options, Adam and a nameless woman. And he attaches himself to the one who has no identity. If you walk around life without the word of God washing over you, without an identity, I promise you, you are the enemy's first target. And so what you've got to do is when you wake up in the morning, you've got to put some name, names on yourself. My name is victorious. My name is more than a conqueror. My name is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. My name is filled with the Holy Spirit. My, see, the Word of God is full of identity, but if you don't name yourself with the, what the Word of God declares, then the world will name you something the opposite. The reason why Adam and Eve sinned is because Adam and Eve for God, and then the Bible shows us that Adam and Eve realized their nakedness. They sewed for themselves fig leaves, and then the Bible says that they go and they hide. And after they hide, the Bible says that they hear the footsteps of God walking in the garden, approaching them. And to be honest with you, this is terrifying. They have just defied a holy God. They have just broken the one rule. I'm like, y'all have one job. They broke the one rule that God gave them, and now they are hiding, and this holy, omniscient, omnipotent God is now walking towards them. It reminds me of when my mom would tell my siblings, like, hey, it's time to go to sleep, turn off the lights, and stop talking. The first time we started talking, she'd yell from her room, hey, quiet down. Second time, hey, quiet down. But then the third time we would hear those feet start stomping <laughs> off of the bed. <laughs> and that's when we knew mama was about to come and drop the hammer on us. And here Adam and Eve are with God approaching after they've just defied his law. And we're about to see how a holy God responds to man's sin. In his Genesis chapter 3 and verse 9, it says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, well, we'll talk about what he said later, but here's what we do know is that Adam 
sinned and when Adam sinned, it did not just affect Adam, but it infected every single person that would be born on this planet. It infected Cain. It infected Abel. It infected David and Moses. And Ezekiel was born into sin. Isaiah was born into sin. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, me, you, all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, all the way into the book of, the act, uh, of Acts, uh, a man by the name of Saul, they were born into Sin. And don't forget about Adam, don't forget about Eve, but the next sinner that I want to talk about is a man by the name of Saul. Because, because Adam and Eve were the ones that forgot, but Saul didn't forget who he was. Saul was forged by sin. Adam and Eve were the ones who forgot Saul was forged. Adam merely adopted the dark. Saul was born into it and molded by it. That's a quote from Batman, if you did not know. All Saul knew was darkness. This was his upbringing. This was his world. Saul sinned because it was all he knew. Saul was a cold-blooded killer. I think we so passively say, yeah, Saul killed Christians. But the reality is Saul was going home-to-home terrorizing people, pulling Christians from their home, separating mothers from sons, Daughters from fathers, husbands from wives, carrying them to jail many times for a death sentence in Rome. Saul was a terrorist to believers. And the reason why Saul was in this life of sin is because it is all that he knew. And maybe you're in this room and you say, man, I'm not like Adam because I can't go back to a time in my life where everything was beautiful. Some of you were born in darkness. Some of you, your earliest memories are that of abuse and pain. Some of you, your earliest memories are brokenness and frustration. And the reality is, in the same way sin forged Saul, sin has shaped you. I picture like a blacksmith, the way a blacksmith shapes metal. And the blacksmith has an intention. I want to shape this metal in a specific way. He has an end goal. Listen, sin has an end goal to shape you, but it is not into the image that you were designed to be shaped into. And many times we live a world in darkness, a world in sin, and and we are shaped. And here we are in 2022 with a dysfunctional soul, a dysfunctional mindset, a dysfunctional worldview because you've been formed, forged, shaped by darkness. Now, if you're in this room and you have been formed by sin, I've got really good news for you, and that is that God loves to use broken people. God loves to use people who are not pristine and pretty and perfect. He loves to find the messiest people and say, that's the one that I want to use. So if you've been broken, you're in good company. God wants to use you. But, kill it, like kill the momentum right there. But, That doesn't change the fact that Saul is in sin and some pretty dark sin at that. That doesn't change the fact that Saul is going home to home executing judgment on the people of God. And and we see this place in scripture where God responds to Saul's sin. And I want to read it to you. Uh, In in Acts chapter 9, verse 3, God shows his response to Saul's sin when it says, now as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly, well, we're going to talk about what God did here in just 
a few moments. But here's what we know is we have Adam, the one that forgot. We have Saul, the one that was forged. And there's one last individual that I want to talk about as we prepare to close this message. And, and that is this person that Jesus calls the prodigal. Now, if you know the story of the prodigal son, it's a story. It says that there was a father who had two sons. The father is a representation not of an imperfect father, but of our heavenly father. And he has two sons, one that stays in the house, and then one that decides one day that he's going to leave the house, take all that he has, and waste his life. And because this father is a perfect, is, is a perfect father, is a picture of the, uh, the heavenly father, if you can imagine for a moment the way that this prodigal grew up was glorious. He grew up in a perfect house. Imagine a picture-perfect family. Imagine a house where there is no strife or contention, just peace. I imagine moments where they sat around the dinner table. I imagine moments where they laughed together, cried together, went on vacation together. This was family. I can imagine the father laying the son down and telling him bedtime stories as he went to sleep. I can imagine the father praying for him as he closed his eyes. I can imagine the father sharing with him the word of God. I can imagine the father having an awkward talk with him about the birds and the bees when he was 12 years old. I can imagine the father... Raising him in a perfect environment, and I'm asking the question, why would he leave a perfect environment? And I cannot climb into the mind of the prodigal son, but here's what I do know is I have lived my life in this house called the house of God. And I've, I know a lot of believers who are raised in this environment, and, and many times the reason why people sin, the reason why people leave the house is because of this thing called familiarity. I think it's quite possible that one of the reasons the prodigal left the father's house is because he became familiar with his presence, he became familiar with his provision, he became familiar with the safety, he, he became familiar with his word, and my question for people who are maybe raised in the house of God is, have you become familiar with him? The more time we spend with Jesus, we have a decision to make. Am I going to grow in faithfulness or grow in familiarity? And the greatest battle of my life has been, I cannot become familiar with this God that I've been hearing about since I can remember. Anybody else raised in the house of God and, and you grew up seeing miracles and you grew up seeing radical generosity and you, and you grew up hearing about this message and you grew up hearing about the cross and the nails and the crown of thorns and if we're not careful, we will become so familiar with it that the greatest story of sacrifice does not even move me anymore. This is why I'm constantly praying this prayer. God, help me not to become familiar with you. There are many times where I will pull into this parking lot on a Sunday morning and say, God, I don't want to be a professional Christian. I want to be moved. I don't want to lose my fire. I don't want to lose my passion. I don't want to lose my tears. I don't want to lose my gratitude. I don't want to lose that childlike faith that looks at Jesus and says, you're wonderful. You're amazing. There's nobody like you. I remember I was a youth pastor. 
You can't be a preacher and not tell an old youth pastor story. Realize how old I'm getting when I say I used to be a youth pastor. Everything pops and stuff. And Pray for me, you know. I was a youth pastor and I had t- taken my students to camp and they were in the middle of worship and I saw all of my youth students. They were up at the front. They were worshiping. Some of them were lifting their hands. Some of them were dancing. I saw them crying out to God, weeping. And my mind went back to when I was a teenager at camp. And I remember thinking the words, I remember when I used to do that. And the Holy Spirit quickly spoke to me very clearly, and he said, I wish you still would. You know what I did? I was like, yes, sir. And I went up to the front and started out dancing, out crying, out praising all of them. The temptation of a believer is to hear these words so much that they don't move us anymore. But here's the reality. If you're not moved by the gospel, the world will not be moved by the gospel. If this word does not still shake you to your core, then we will not shake the earth. If this word does not still revive you, we will never see revival. And so what I've got to do is understand that familiarity is a poison that kills me slowly. Nothing kills relationship like familiarity. This is, nothing kills intimacy like familiarity. Nothing kills closeness with God like familiarity. And many of us, we become so familiar and little by little, one day we look around and we realize we are miles from the Father's house. And this prodigal son had this moment where he realized as he's wasted all of his possessions on prodigal living. He's wasted everything on sinful living. He realizes, you know what? I'll just go back to my father's house and I'll just see if he'd be willing to take me back as a servant. And just like Adam, just like Saul, we're about to see how God responds to man's sin. And we see this moment where the prodigal starts making his journey back to the father. We're going to see how a holy, perfect God responds to a sinful man. The Bible says, it even is so beautiful, it shows us the picture where the father sees the prodigal son on the horizon. And I envision the father standing to his feet and he's about to respond to the familiarity of this prodigal son. And we see the father, you guessed it, we'll talk about that here in just a moment. Three people that we've talked about today. We've got Adam, the one who forgot, Saul, the one that was forged, and the prodigal, the one who became familiar. And the reality is everyone in this room falls into one of those categories. Maybe you used to know God, but you've forgotten who you are. Maybe all you've known is darkness and you've been formed by sin. Or maybe you were raised in this beautiful thing called the church of Jesus Christ, but you've become familiar. Three different men, and we're about to see how God responds to man's sin. Three different men that have defied the word of God, that have walked out on what they were called to do, that have rejected his word, and we're about to see how God responds. And honestly, this is kind of terrifying. A holy God. A holy God who hates sin, 
The wages of sin is death, and God is about to respond to man's sin. This is exceptionally terrifying because I was raised to believe that God cannot look at sin. I was raised to believe that God was so serious about not looking at sin that when Jesus was on the cross bearing the sins of humanity that the Father looked away in disgust. I was taught that when God said, or when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That it wasn't his human emotion expressing something, but it was an indication of a reality that God had abandoned him. This is what I was taught in religion. This is what I was taught in my upbringing. And I began as a, as a teenager, as I began to comprehend what I was being taught, I began to just explore the scriptures and ask the question, do we really serve a God who would abandon his son when he does the mission that he was sent to do? Do we really serve a God that says, okay, now here you are in this state of sin. I've got to look away and walk out on you. Because if it's true that God abandoned his son Jesus when he was bearing the sins of humanity, it is not looking good for Adam. And it is not looking good for Saul. And it is not looking good for the prodigal. And so as I was exploring the scriptures, I started asking this question, where was the Father when Jesus was on the cross? And I began to look and I found this particular place in 2 Corinthians. And this is the moment where everything shifts. This is the moment where everything changes. This is so incredibly powerful. I want to I show you 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. Here's the question that we've got to answer. Where was the Father? Where was the Father when Jesus was bearing the sins of humanity? And this is what the Bible says. God was where? In Christ. God was where? One more time. God was where? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's interesting because I was taught that God was a million miles away in the heavens turning his back. But the truth of scripture is this, is that the father could not have been closer. The truth of the scripture is this, that the father was not a million miles away turning his back in disgust. The father said, I'm going to get as close as humanly possible to this man who is bearing the sins of humanity. Which tells me that if you are in sin, God's response to your sin is not to distance himself, not to punish you with distance, but to draw near to you so that he can rescue you from sin. So if God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, it made me wonder, what was God's response to Adam's sin? What was God's response to Saul's sin? What was God's response to the prodigal's sin? And that's what we're going to cover. Go back with me to the garden. You remember Adam and Eve, they're hiding, and they hear the footsteps approaching, and religion would tell you this is a scary moment. But then the father comes to, che to, to Adam, and he asks this question, where are you? Not what have you done, where are you? Which tells me 
that the Father comes searching for Adam when Adam forgets. What about Saul? If anyone's gonna receive judgment from God, it's gonna be Saul, the one who's killing Christians, the one who has got a mission to destroy the body of Christ. But we see how a holy God responds to Saul as Saul is on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter nine, verse three. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly, watch this, a great light from heaven shone around him. God, not great darkness, not great judgment, not great pain, not great distance. He showed him great light, changed his name to Paul and used him to change the world. But what about the prodigal? Now the prodigal is different than Adam. The prodigal is different than Saul because he knew the word of God and he rejected it. He forgot it. He became familiar. He wasted his life. And I'm thinking, surely I'm gonna find the moments where God walks out on somebody. Surely I'm going to find the moment where God sees sin and says, I don't want anything to do with that person. But we see the moment where this father responds to his son. And the Bible shows us this picture of him seeing him on the horizon. We're about to see how a holy God responds to sinful man. And I see this father standing to his feet. In fact, why don't you stand to your feet right now? I see this father standing to his feet. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 20 through 21, let's read this together. When the prodigal was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out. Come on, I love those three words. He ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't even listening. I love that verse. He was calling to his servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a prize-winning heifer and roast it. Y'all know it's a party when the prize-winning heifer comes out. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive. Given up for lost and now found. What are we learning about God today? Is that when Adam sinned, God came running. When Saul sinned, God came running. And yes, when the prodigal walked away and wasted everything, we serve a God who runs, not from you. Can we celebrate the gospel? for a moment, not from you, not away from you. He's not rejecting you in your dark times. He draws near to you to rescue you from it. Woo, that's good news. See, he celebrates Paul while Paul is preaching, but he will also sit with Saul while Saul is sinning. He celebrates Adam while Adam is walking in the garden, but also he comes searching for Adam when he runs and he hides. I feel like there's people hiding today thinking he's, he wants to release judgment on me, but really he's just asking, where are you? And we serve a God that when the prodigal walks away and he sees you on the horizon, ashamed, broken, addicted and reciting your speech he does not fold his arms on the porch and say yeah this better be good we serve a God who runs I started this message by telling you this the wages of sin is still death 
the wages of sin is death. That means there is a payment that is required. Here's the good news of the gospel, is that the one who paid it all, the one who paid the debt of sin, the one who paid the debt for Adam, for Saul, for the prodigal, and for you, is not my good effort or my good behavior. But when Jesus died on the cross and said in John 19.30, it is finished, he was saying your debt has been paid, there's no record of wrong that can be held against you. Is anybody thankful for a God who runs, for a God who pursues us, for a God who will not give up on you? What do I do with this message? Yeah, I don't want you to forget who you are. I don't want you to allow sin to forge you. And I don't want you to become familiar, but here's the main point of the message is I want you to understand that in your brokenness, in your shame, in your addiction, in your your pain, Jesus is not running away from you. He's running towards you. If you believe the narrative that the Father is distant and far away and wants nothing to do with you, you will live in, in cycles of shame and brokenness. But if you realize he's a God who runs, Freedom is going to come to your life like, I just felt the whole room shift. Freedom is going to come to your life like never before. What does the Bible say is that God's kindness leads us to repentance. In other words, my life is transformed and changed when I realize he's a kind God. He's running towards us. Heads bowed, eyes closed all across this room.